Welcome to Spelunking with Plato, a podcast devoted to conversations about liberal education hosted by the University of St. Thomas's School of Arts and Sciences. Here, students and faculty are called through the light of faith and the Catholic intellectual tradition to ascend from Plato's cave, bringing others with them to a vision of the good and the life of human flourishing. Well, welcome to our next conversation with Dr. Chris Wolf. Um, it's a pleasure to have you here. And um, uh, Dr. Wolf is Assistant Professor of Political Science here at the University of St. Thomas. Um, this is his third year of teaching at UST. Um, he's previously taught at University of Dallas, um, the other uh, Catholic University here in Texas. Um, he, he recently became editor of Catholic Southwest, a journal of history and culture, and writes for many journals and blogs. Um, and uh, one of your most recent publications um, is appearing in the Catholic Social Science Review entitled Riley and the Republic in 2020, Why Isn't America Cool Anymore? Um, and in our last conversation, I, I, I promised we would, we would circle around to talk about a number of other questions. Um, and we might as well just start here. Um, so why isn't America cool anymore? Um, can you talk about this in the context of Deneen's critique and give us some background and maybe your thoughts? Sure. Uh, I was being a little bit funny and saying America's not cool sure. anymore. Uh, but uh, I was being funny in that because James Madison talks about uh, the need for coolness in deliberation in our public debates. And our debates are not conducted in a cool fashion anymore. They are very hot. They are very... What do you mean polarized, by that? Polarized. <laughs> what, what are you uh, talking angry. about? <laughs> what do you mean by that? Yeah. Um, and so they're not, they are much less, America is much less cool in terms of its public debates. Hmm. That's the kind of joke in the title. Um, but, uh, and I argue, I argue that, you know, that's been coming for a long time, that kind of uh, more polarized rhetoric and everything else. But, you know, I think that, you know, and actually uh, we mentioned demagoguery last time, um, that norm against demagoguery that the founders had has been completely, uh, lost and changed, uh, because, um, just the, the way that politicians themselves operate, the way that, journalists cover them uh and also our technology changing of course you always hear about the radio debate uh also recorded on tv the nixon kennedy debate right that's a classic example um of a technology change making for a more hot debate uh and it's only gone up and up and up since then especially with social media and twitter that's just liquid liquid fire right there is, yeah. uh, is, uh, is Twitter. Um, and so what, what to do about that? I mean, part of the idea about federalism spreading out power from the national government was to cool the debate, to have dispersed power like that. Well, it's a much smaller world. Uh, and we are much more connected with the people in Washington, D.C., than we were before. And so what's interesting when you read Federalist 10, um, which most people, including Pat Deneen, 
they kind of skip over this part, but I think it's in some ways the most important part just from my school of thought on the founding and the Federalist is that the part where Madison says in Federalist 10 that um, uh, we need to have representatives who will refine and enlarge the public views that part right there hmm. to refine and enlarge the public views. That's what our representatives should be doing. And so it's not just mirroring, giving people exactly what they ask for. That is actually not what Madison and the founders attempted to do. That would be more of a direct democracy kind of plan. And that's what the anti-federalists said that they, they wanted. And by the way, Patanin studied with a great anti-federalist uh, scholar and, th and that's, kind of he likes that way more but uh but madison himself and the founders um i come at them more from what they've called in uh political science a deliberative democracy kind of uh way of interpreting them that um the goal of the legislature is to deliberate wisely most people don't realize that, but that's, and so you think about the goal of the different institutions, the goal of the presidency is energy. Energy is what they say in the federal papers is what the executive branch you want out of it. Um, and so the goal of the legislature was supposed to be deliberation about the common good, making laws that were wise in that way. And they tried to put some things in that would um, you know, ensure that that kind of deliberation would happen. And, you know, a lot of them have fallen, fallen into disrepair, uh, for, you know, reasons that they couldn't have foreseen some, in some ways knowing, I don't think they could have known that these, that Twitter would have developed right. or, but they could have known, you know, perhaps, I mean, or, or even that railroads would make things so much closer or right. that airplanes would make it possible to go back home to your districts on the weekend and then, you know, connect, be so connected that way. Um, so that's why I, I have this article called why isn't America cool anymore? Uh, and, uh, you know, it, in part, it, I'm also kind of being funny and saying cool anymore. America also isn't cool anymore in, a, in that more colloquial sense of cool as in popular or fun, uh, with a lot of young people now, it seems like it's not it's not cool anymore. But maybe it's not cool anymore and as in popular, because it's also not cool anymore as in doing the wise deliberation. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you mentioned. I mean, you've got um, you know got your reference in the title here is to Riley's book as well, and um, and you mentioned Patrick Deaney a couple of times, and I, I did as well. Um, can you say a bit about this this debate about the founding that's been raging on for okay, sure? Yeah, they call it the liberalism wars. Uh, <laughs> uh, Are you now, or have you ever friends. been a liberal? No, just yeah. I'm a I'm a natural law liberal. Okay. Uh, the um, so th this has been a debate that's yes gone on on and on and on, but basically um, the. There was a big book that came out maybe three or four years ago, uh, made a you know big splash on New York Times uh, bestseller uh, called uh, Why Liberalism Failed by Pat Deneen, who's a political philosopher in Notre Dame. Um, 
basically arguing that our founding was defective because it was liberal, because it was um, it was uh, designed and Lockean liberal principles. Uh, yeah, let's clarify that because we're not talking about sort of contemporary politically, you know, liberal versus conservative here mm -hmm. so much. Because um, by I think a lot of definitions, both our contemporary conservatives and our contemporary liberals would be liberal That's by this right. class. So could you s clarify maybe? Sure. Those, yeah. So I'm not talking about conservative versus liberal in that sense. I'm talking about classical liberalism. Right. Classical liberalism. Just think about the word you know, liberty, freedom, right. You know, both conservatives and liberals today, um, with those political labels, they would say we're for freedom in different ways. And right. so, uh, there, uh, this argument, uh, that Deneen's engaging is in is to saying that classical liberalism with its embrace of rights of private property and its embrace of, um, uh, many different civil rights, uh, especially free speech. Uh, it's uh, rejection of an established religion. It's, um, uh, you know, tending tendency towards democratic uh, models of voting. Um, it's uh, all those various different aspects of our current liberal democracy, um, and also embrace of the free market. Uh, all that uh, actually inherently leads you in a bad direction is what uh, I think Deneen would argue. Now that's, so he's a Catholic philosopher. Um, and I would say he's very consciously arguing against an earlier Catholic philosopher from about 60 or 70 years ago, uh, named John Courtney Murray, Jesuit priest, uh, who wrote a book called, uh, we hold these truths. We hold these truths, um, argued that, you know, classical liberalism and, and the Catholic faith can, they can work well together and, uh, classical liberalism won't inherently lead you in a bad direction, but, but that, um, Catholicism and and uh, good good uh, philosophy can help ground uh, natural law. Philosophy can help ground the liberal democracy in a way that it needs. Uh, yeah, and, and so, but instead of grounding, and so, and so um, we can see we can see actually the current debate as. Yeah, going back to Murray, and by the way, Murray's not just just a you know, it's just some author. He was very influential at, at at in the 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 papal documents on on uh, free exercise of religion, for example, Dignitatis Humanae. Um, very influential in helping um, write some of those documents. And um, so this is this is an important debate, I think, uh, for for Catholics in America. When I'm thinking of the journal first things, a large part of that project for many years was to try to ground the American experiment, to use Newhouse's language, uh, more firmly on natural law principles. 
um, insofar as they were there, and I, I think many of the people affiliated with that journal believed they were, it was a matter of kind of dusting them off, making them clear, making them stronger. Um, and then Deneen comes in and, and says, well, actually, no, this, this whole thing is misguided. This whole project is. Um, but I think you and perhaps others have suggested there's a kind of selective reading of the sources going on here um, with Deneen. Can you, you want, can you say a bit about, about yes, that? Yes, I, I, I think there is. Um, because, you know, all, it, in the founding fathers that I've read, um, and even the anti-federalists, federalists or anti-federalists, those for the Constitution or against the Constitution, they were all natural law thinkers, <laughs> from my perspective. They all believed in natural rights. Uh, they were all classical liberals. Right. Even the anti-federalists who Deneen says, oh, we should be more like them. No, uh, they were classical liberals too. And so, uh, you know, and so it's, it was an interesting um, period uh, where you just had people, you, you saw it in the newspapers, you saw it in the sermons that were given in churches, you saw it in books and uh, pamphlets that people wrote. Right. The, um, the rights language is everywhere and liberty languages everywhere back then. Um, and, um, you know, so um, I do think that, uh, you know, there's been debates about, well, was the founding really uh, classical liberalism? There's been some major historians who tried to argue that. And I think that I, I'm not mischaracterizing them and saying they've kind of abandoned that and, say, and, and would say, okay, there is a lot of classical liberalism in the founding, but, uh, you know, but um, uh, so that's, that would be my biggest objection to him. And, and that, those, that argument about the anti-federalist the anti also being uh, classical liberals, uh, it was made by a guy named Herbert Storing. And, and uh, what the anti-federalists were for is the name of the book. Hmm. And um, it's just an excellent study. I'd recommend it to, to anyone. Yeah. Uh, well, it's interesting. I, I, was with, um, um, I was with some other fathers my age recently. We were discussing the political proclivities of our sons. And it was interesting because that idea that America's founding isn't cool anymore, that there's a sense in which the younger generation has lost faith in um, the American project um, raised, it was interesting to discuss among the, the different fathers what our sons have become interested in politically. Um, and for some of them, the first president they really remember is Donald Trump. And then the first real major political campaign was this past summer. Um, so it's, it's all very new and different than I think any of us as fathers grew up with. You know, uh, the, the, you know, the, the Mondale Reagan debates, right? Um, you know, um, so I guess, I guess the question then becomes, well, um, what are we for? If, if we're gonna, if we're gonna turn away from the American founding, what's our alternative? Um, so, or is this a bit like the discussions I had with, with Marxist in graduate school, where it's this thing we were just, you know, it has no real possibility of ever taking place. That, and, and, and if it did, it would be t terribly tragic, right? So, so what are the options on the, on the horizon that people are talking about? And, and what do you think about them as, as real options? Very good question. Um, yeah, part of being cool as a young person is to cut through the nonsense. Right. 
cut through that when people say, oh, I'm being neutral, when they're really loading the deck, when they're really, sorry, stacking the deck or loading the dice. Right. Uh, and they're not really being neutral. Uh, they want to undermine your way of life. Uh, when they, although they're saying they're neutral, that's what I think people, both left and right young people, just can't stand anymore is uh, that kind of fake. Uh, and so that's not cool. Yeah. Right. And so, um, so I think you do need to put your cards on the table and say, I believe in the comprehensive doctrine of natural law, <laughs> you know, or, or Christianity or whatever you do believe in. Uh, it's much cooler just to put your card on the table. However, that does not mean that you have to reject the principles of, of, uh, of liberty, though, and uh, classical liberalism. Uh, if, you, if you do that, I mean, um, the option that I discussed from earlier from going back to John Courtney Murray of saying, yes, embrace liberal democracy, but also grounded on natural law, must be grounded on natural law. I mean, if, if you put that on the table and you don't hide the natural law part, you're not being uncool in that way. Uh, and so I think that's what I think is the best option. Uh, but then there's, yeah, there's other people like, like the integralists who say, don't embrace liberty or liberalism at all. Uh, just impose the Catholic religion. Uh, that's what some people are arguing now. But I, but I think it is because they don't, they don't like that fake neutrality. And so they're, everybody's grasping toward more and more comprehensive doctrines. Uh, these openly Marxist people now, openly um, uh, liberal or, or, or what, what, um, whatever it is, they're actually arguing for it as a best way of life now. Well, it's funny you said that because what seems to be needed or desired by a lot of people is a clear articulation of what the project is. This is the project I stand for. This is what it's based on. And this is where I think we should go. Yeah. Right. And so I guess the question is in our current system of government, in our current society, the current regime, is it possible to coolly articulate a found sort of a set of founding principles, be they natural law and some sort of common good that we're aiming at? Is it possible to do that? Um, is it possible as a society to even agree on a common good at this point? Um, I think we've got to, but I don't know how to exactly. Uh, the to have some kind of census communis that we can agree on. Other, otherwise, it seems like you're kind of aimed toward a lot of fragmentation. A lot of fragmentation. Yeah, because it seems like um, as the political as it swings back and forth, it's swinging harder. And harder, and then each each time one side wins, they're going to impose or attempt to impose even more strongly their vision of, of what a common good is, and some sort of perhaps unarticulated set of principles. And then the other side is just counting and waiting its time, biding its time until it can then do the same. And each side is hoping to kind of rig the system in a way, break down, you know, break things down, rig it in such a way that they never lose power because they know if they do, the other side is going to try to take out everything they've accomplished. Um, it's, it, it is a very, it does make me think of Plato. I think Andrew Sullivan wrote a piece in New York magazine back around in the 2016 year in which he mapped America, the American politics, you know, the course of American politics on the Republic and the regime change. And I know that that article got a lot of attention mm -hmm. um, back then. And it is, it is, it is frightening if, if, if democracies have a tendency to slide into some form of tyranny, 
whether that be tyranny of a single person or tyranny of a bureaucracy. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of concern. Um, if I could just shift a little bit, your your um, dissertation was on McIntyre. Um, is there a McIntyrean reading of things that are it's available to us now that you would you would offer? Um, it's it's interesting. I mean, so uh, McIntyre, I agree. He, he I, I would say he mainly what he has to offer is a a vision of um, what, uh, what we should be aiming at in terms of, uh, virtues. Uh, and then also he, he does have, he sees through a lot of, um, current day, uh, fake, uh, attempts to replace what we should be aiming at. Um, but in terms of concrete advice about regimes, I don't think he offers that much in the way of that. Uh, it's it's more at a, at a more abstract level, yeah. Uh, but at a very important abstract level, in terms of you know arguing that no radical autonomy of the individual, this doesn't make sense. Uh, that we are dependent rational animals. That that's um, what's natural actually and and good for for people to uh, for for human beings to live. Um, so it, it's, it's more at the very abstract end of it. And so, but that, that comes up though, in, in more abstract parts of our regime, like in constitutional law, for example, where we have, uh, justice Anthony Kennedy talking about radical autonomy, of the individual right. that we should be able to, uh, define the mystery of our lives, uh, that we have a constitutional right to that. Um, you know, I mean. You can only you can make so you can only make so many historical arguments that the Fourteenth Amendment wasn't supposed to aim at that, and then you also need to argue to say that uh, that that doesn't make sense on a philosophical level. So that then you bring in McIntyre, I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and I, one of the things you know, I think I'm, two things that that in conversations about McIntyre around here, two things that come out frequently is this, 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 the way he ends after virtue, right? This, this sense of decline, right? That, that the regime is, is already so corrupted. He was writing, when was this 1973? So, so it was already so corrupted. It could, it was irreformable. And so there's a kind of almost political melancholy, right? We just, we have to, we have to wait for, um, another St. Benedict, um, which is not exactly a clarion call to reform the current system and keep it alive and find a way to build um, a new going forward in terms of saving and repairing what we have. But then there's also a, a self-awareness of which traditions we're involving or we, we're inhabiting and, and, and sort of being more self-conscious about what we're drawing from. Um, there's another political philosopher who comes up frequently um, and, um, and I'm not, well, I'm not classifying McIntyre as a political philosopher, but I'm, I'm thinking also of Leo Strauss. So, um, you know, he, he was in the news more a while back, but he's still, there are prominent journals and political philosophers on the scene that draw on his thought. Can you, for those who haven't heard of him or read much of his work, can you say a bit about what, what Leo Strauss offers? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I studied with some Straussians in, in graduate school and, uh, Leo Strauss was very much a political theorist, um, but he wouldn't be part of the same orbit as McIntyre. Um, usually McIntyre is considered in the orbit of 
the analytic philosophers who have studied political philosophy. And so we're talking about John Rawls. Uh, uh, we're talking about Michael Sandel, um, Robert Nozick. Those are some libertarian, liberal, and communitarians. That's kind of the okay. orbit that McIntyre is usually talked in, in terms of. People talk about him as a communitarian, although he says, I'm not a communitarian, but still some of the thing, some of the arguments he lays out in After Virtue make the, the, are, are the arguments that communitarians would use. And are, are there any labels he would accept? No, I'm just, you know, no, I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I, my sense is there's not. Just yeah, he's Aristotelian, he's a Catholic. <laughs> so. uh, they, but, um, um, but Strauss would be completely outside of all that. I mean, he's studying uh, with the continental tradition in Germany. And, you know, as a Jew in 1930s, he, you know, had to leave the country. And like many immigrants, uh, came to University of Chicago and kind of started a school of political philosophy there. And uh, he was very much emphasized going back to the classics of political philosophy um, and wrote a book on Machiavelli, wrote books on, uh, his book was Thoughts on Machiavelli, wrote a big book on uh, um, uh, the ancients, the city and man, which was Plato, Thucydides, and Aristotle, and wrote one very good book against kind of the moral relativism of today um, called Natural Right and History, which also, uh, I, I would compare it to After Virtue. Hmm. Um, now, so I would say what he's been, what he was, his biggest impact was on teaching students to appreciate those works. Uh, and he had a specific mode of interpretation that was very much purely focused on the primary text and not paying it much attention to, uh, the historical circumstances. Uh, and so in that respect, he's, he's kind of a little bit like the, um, uh, in literature, the, uh, uh, new critics, uh, trying to focus, what can we get out of just the text? Um, and tr really try to figure out that argument. And in some respects, it connects with the Catholic and Thomistic respect for authorities, hmm. same kind of way of uh, respect for the author before and not dismissing him because we know these facts about his biography or her biography. Right. And so the the phrase that Strausians would repeat always would be, try to understand the author as he or she understood themselves. That's kind of like the cornerstone in terms of right. trying to interpret. Um, now, I my approach is that, you know, I also want to read about the, the historical stuff too, about the author uh, and sometimes bring that in, but I, but I, I, I am appreciative to the, to the Strauss and teachers I had and, and getting me to pay attention first and last to what the author actually wrote and actually read what the author wrote. Uh, don't just write them, write them off. Um, and, and then there's some, some, some substantive, um, claims though, that about philosophy that many Straussians have that I would also agree with some of those and didn't disagree with others of them. But, um, I think probably the, yeah, the, the, the mode of interpretation is probably the biggest thing that they've contributed. Yeah. A close reading of these texts, taking them seriously. Um, 
And I think that that ties into the approach we have in our renewal of the core, which is um, we want to read, we want to give a priority of place to um, classic texts um, that are part of a larger conversation across time, um, trying to, as we try to become wise and we become interlocutors with our teachers and our students um, and then the authors. Um, and there is truth to be known. And um, this link between sort of the creator, the natural world, um, and then our own lives, there, there are direct links here. And, um, and uh, this has been part of a much larger conversation. We don't have to reinvent the wheel, um, but we can draw on, on these, uh, these sources. Um, well, I, there are lots of other things we could talk about, but I, I'm very grateful for your time. And we covered quite a bit here. <laughs> so yeah. um, I would encourage um, our listeners to seek out um, your writings and your podcasts and your, your blog posts and, uh, and, uh, and to participate in the, the larger debate. Um, so just in, in conclusion, are you, you have hope still for our country. We still have hope for our, our, our political regime. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We're not done yet. Not done yet. Okay. <laughs> I'll take that. Okay. Thank you so much. Thanks, George. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye.